Hello and welcome to this very special edition of Rasslin' Memories. I'm Glenn Broggett, along with my uh, co-host, my special guest co-host. He's returning to the chair for this special edition. It's good to have him back. He's been a busy guy here in 2021. He's been appearing. I've been listening to a few of his appearances on various shows. He always does such a great job with respect to uh, history, not only of the AWA, but other pro wrestling territories and entities. And he's here with us to uh, look back on the life of a man who we lost here in the early part of December on the 8th of the month, Mr. Black Jack Lanza. And to help us uh, take a look back at the life and career of Jack Lanza is Mr. George Shire, noted pro wrestling historian and author, I might add, as we're getting closer to the holidays. He has some great history books uh, about the AWA, uh, both the general history and some record books. But anyway, George, welcome to the program. Good to have you back. Hey, Glenn Broggett. It's always fun to be back on our wrestling memories, wrestling memories, man, that's, that's fun stuff. And yeah, we're going to, we're going to talk again about, um, another passing, but you know, I've learned that that's what life is. We, we have to uh, remember those that have went before us and pay homage to them and blackjack Lanza. He's, he's a good one. And we lost him, like you say, on December 8th. Yes, we did. And, uh, you know, this is like not unlike any of the other years in recent history. Uh, we've lost some some big time uh, names in the world of pro wrestling. Like this year, we we saw the passing of Bobby Eaton, Paul Orndorff, uh, Joey Hamilton, uh, Jim Crockett Jr. and Angelo Bosca, just to name a few. But seeing and hearing about Jack Lanza's passing, I mean, reading and looking into his career. Now, this was a man who, uh, you know, not only made his mint uh, in the ring, but he was a guy that later in, when when pro wrestling, you know, in the mid-1980s, you know, when things made the big change, of course, led by Vincent, you know, Kennedy McMahon, uh, things he learned to uh, find his way in a different route and became a very well-respected road agent. And it's the time that he spent in between, you know, being, you know, with Blackjack uh, Mulligan in, in his early years. I mean, this was a guy that uh, lived a long well, or, I guess a long life, a long lived life, but he, he did it and he did it on his own terms. And it is sad to see a guy like him pass away. But we also this is meant to be more of a celebration of a guy who was able to be on this earth for what some 86 years, George, that 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 is just amazing in and of itself. Well, indeed it is. And when you say 86, you know, and the older we get, or at least I, you're, you're a lot younger than I am, but. The older I get, uh, 86 doesn't look that old anymore. But you're right. Um, you know, and Jack Lanza, he, he was a guy, Glenn, that um, he he did it the way they used to do it in professional wrestling. He started in the business, and he worked his way up. He went through the preliminary matches in the early years of his careers. He was, you know, in the opening matches on cards and and then, you know, into the middle of the cards. and But he, you know, today we realize it's a little different. Some guy is six foot seven and built like a brick, you know what. Mm-hmm. And he's in the main event in his first match being the next biggest thing, you know. But wrestling was different back in Jack Lanza's era. Mm-hmm. And he, um, he, he did it the right way. He got his training. A lot of people don't know this. I mean, you know, back in the old kayfabe era, mm-hmm. a lot of people don't know this, that Jack Lanza was trained by a guy named Vern Gagne. Mm-hmm. One of the hundred, over a hundred and close to 150 guys that Vern 
uh, either assisted, worked with, or trained for pro wrestling. Well, George, was that one of his earlier trainees uh, for for Vern? Uh, because this we're talking about the early early nineteen sixties when he and he discovered Jack and put him through the training. Well, Jack Lanza was a a graduate of the uh, one of the local Minneapolis schools, De La Salle, and a young athlete. And he approached Vern Gagne. Vern, you know, and here's the thing about Vern, Glenn. He watched the schools, the high schools and the colleges. He looked for people that he felt could, you know, make that transition from an amateur type wrestling or that had that athletic look and background to them. And so a lot of times he would, you know, put a feeler out there. Jack Lanza made his uh, pro debut in 1962 and just as an irony of that his very first opponent was a guy named black jack daniels (laughs) so i I, when i was looking at that uh, here the other day you know going through my files i thought well that's a little bit of irony but with you know jack lanza and answering your question uh vern by 1962 had already worked with a lot of guys and brought them into the business. Mm -hmm. He wasn't doing his formal training camps like he did later on where he'd have, you know, 10 or 12 guys come out and want to become a wrestler. But he he would pick a guy here and there and go with it. So before Jack, you know, there was Gene Anderson out of South St. Paul that he uh, worked with and brought into the business. And a lot of people don't realize that, uh, Way back as far as 1954, when Vern was only in the business for, you know, about four or five years at that point, he worked and trained with Dick the Bruiser, Dick Aflis, and brought, you know, gave him a lot of his early training. And Bruiser also got some assistance from Joe Pazendek, who was one of Vern Gagne's trainers. <laughs> so Vern always had that, that eye open. Um, Around 1960-ish or so, there was uh, Bulldog Bob Brown, who Vern worked with and trained him. And uh, so, yeah, Jack Lanza was one of the early ones. Of course, we can't forget Larry Hennig. Oh, no, no. Larry Hennig was in 57 when uh, Vern worked with Larry out of Robbinsdale. And again, Vern was from Robbinsdale, so there was a going to his own school and recruiting and Larry coming to Vern and getting that training. So, yeah, Jack was one of his early ones, mm-hmm. but a lot of people would never know that. And that wasn't publicized, you know, because um, it just wasn't back in that day where they got their training from. And Jack started out as a babyface, plain old Jack Lanza out of Minneapolis. And I have said this on a couple of other uh, places I've talked with in the last couple of weeks. You know, I, as a little kid back in 1962, Mm -hmm. I say little kid because I would have been nine or 10 years old, depending on, see, he made his debut in July of 62, so I would have still been uh, 10 years old. Okay. And he would come to the ring wearing a long red robe, and a lot of the baby faces in that era would come to the ring wearing a robe. His was bright red. And he had a a towel, a white towel around his neck, come into the ring, just kind of blend in, get introduced, 
from Minneapolis, 220 pounds, Jack Lanza. And, of course, he's just another name on the card at that point. And he worked with a lot of guys that he lost to, you know. The guys were working with him. That's the way Vern did it in his territory the whole time. He would always have a lot of his talent work with the young kids. And even though those kids would lose, they're being taught and they're, they're getting training. And that was the beauty of not only that type of situation with Vern, but it worked for the territorial system because these guys could go somewhere else and pick up so much from other talent. And that's how it was so beautiful back in that era. And that was Jack Lanza in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, getting that seasoning, that all-important seasoning and being uh, you know, in the era of the territories. I mean, he not only got you know, the training from Vern, but he ended up moving. Uh, he ended up working a couple of different spots here in his early years, including appearances in, in you know, working for St. Louis, the St. Louis Wrestling Club. Was there a stint in Alabama, too, with NWA Mid-America? He also did some uh, work with the AWA. So uh, this was a guy, I mean, thanks to him, probably a lot of good influence from Vern, was able to kind of move around and get into these spots while creating his name and working his way up. This was, a, again, a classic example of uh, how, the, how well the territories could work for an aspiring wrestler. Well, you know, it was interesting in that era too, Glenn, because when you have a wrestler like Jack Lanza, who spent the first, well, five years as a babyface, he transitioned from Jack Lanza of Minneapolis to all of a sudden, you know, he's wearing a white cowboy hat and some cut-off blue jean uh, pants that he had shaped like into the to look like trunks, mm-hmm. but they were actual jean material. And then he had his cowboy boots on, and he was now Cowboy Jack Lanza out of Albuquerque, New Mexico. And some fans, you know, back then, if they'd followed his career for a couple of years, they would recognize that. But as he traveled, he was out in California, and he hit a couple of other territories, and he'd wrestle as Cowboy Jack always a baby face again, you know, not really main eventing. He had some uh, good matches out in California with killer Kowalski, but he was still, as I say, earning his oats and getting, you know, just honing his, his skills, but as cowboy Jack Lanza, Mm -hmm. but like a lot of those guys of that era, after they're at that five or six year mark, that's when they're either, It's a make-or-break type thing back in that era of of wrestling. Because if the guy's been in the business five, six, seven years, if he's still working only the openers or the main, or, you know, the the next bout on the card, yeah, he's probably not going to have a career at it. And he may, you know, go into something else and maybe just wrestle part-time. I mean, that happened a lot in the business. But Jack was one of those guys that, By the time he got to 1967, he realized, hey, I can do something here, and I like what the heels do. I'm going to come with a heel persona. So, you know, to do the usual thing, like they would turn somebody, you got to surprise the fans, you got to shock the fans. How could good-natured, good Cowboy Jack Lanza do this? And he turns on his tag team partner, Mm. Wilbur Snyder. I mean, they're buddies, they're friends. And we had seen Jack team with all of the baby faces, leaping Larry Shane, Renee Goulet, Reggie Parks, Billy Red Cloud. 
Dale Lewis, all of these guys. And now he turned his back on them. Comes out with a perfect uh, reason in interview. He said, you know, I've been going in the ring and getting my butt kicked and having these guys pound on me and stomp on me, and I'm tired of it. I'm going to be the stomper and the kicker and the aggressor here. It's about time I start getting what's deserved to me. And, you know, being a nice guy isn't doing it. There's your heel transformation. And to top it off, he's no longer cowboy. Now he's adorned in black hat, black vest, black trunks, black boots, and he's black Jack Lanza. Handlebar mustache. There he is. To top it off, what's going to really make this transition complete is he got Bobby Heenan as his manager. That's like the icing now, on the cake when, right there. Icing oh, on the cake. Absolutely the frosting on top of the cake, baby. <laughs> because when Lanza hooked up with Heenan in 1967, this would have been, oh, about probably just two or three years into Bobby Heenan's career because he had had a, an, a short stint managing a, a masked tag team in Indianapolis mm -hmm. called the Assassins, which are not the world-famous Assassins that were down south. This was Joe Tommaso and uh, Guy Mitchell. Uh, we could go into a story on Guy Mitchell, too. He, he's had a long career, great wrestler. Mm -hmm. But Bobby managed them very briefly. Then he managed a team called the Devil's Duo. Yes. And that was Chris Markoff and Angelo Poffo. And after that run, he hooked up with Lanza. There was the magic. Oh. And Heenan, with Heenan's gift of gab and his arrogance and his ability to irritate the fans by interjecting himself into the matches or distracting the referees so that Blackjack could do his dirty deeds, there was the perfect tag team and the perfect marriage. You know, I'm looking too, even before uh, he, he turned uh, into Blackjack, uh, looking at some of the stuff he did out west, whether it be in the northern or southern end of the state of California, I'm looking at some of the results. He teamed up with Pepper Gomez. He even teamed up with Bockwinkle out there. I mean, it, I'm talking north end to the south end, of course, but he definitely had a great run in the Golden State. He had matches too with Kinji Shibuya. He worked with Gorilla oh, yeah. and Lonnie Main. I mean, th this is a guy that was just getting so well seasoned and traveled. I mean, I'm going to kind of keep that concurrently in the theme of just important, how important the, uh, the territories were to, to these guys. Well, when you had 25 territories, give or take, you know, sometimes there were a little bit more over the course of that 30 year period. And we're talking like from about 1950 through 1980, 85, when you had all those territories, Glenn, th there were 3000 guys out there that could make a lucrative living just going from territory to territory. And then we, we, we don't discount the fact that they could take Japan tours. So all these other territories, this is what made guys like Jack Lanza so valuable in the business as they got into their 10, 15, 20, and 25 years into their work. And so the, the transition for black Jack Lanza, he ended up working a lot and fans don't know this as well you know, openly, but back in that time, Vern Gagne was then training in 1970. He was working and training with a guy named Bob Windham. Well, Bob Windham was a big dude. 
And after about a year's worth of AWA wrestling, so he's working with Bob Windham. And, you know, he and Bob are becoming good friends. Well, in 1971, Vince McMahon Sr. wants to bring Bob Windham in and recast him. Of course, Bob Windham's going to die because he's never going to be heard from again. And he, he dubs him Black Jack Mulligan. Basically a carbon copy look of Jack Lanza at that point in time in 1971. So now we're going into 1972 and Blackjack Mulligan, it was kind of inevitable that he was going to be able to hook up with Jack Lanza again in Indianapolis for the, uh, the Bruisers WWA territory. So Bruiser puts the Blackjacks together, and of course, Bobby Heenan, he's part of the equation again. And they became probably one of the most memorable heel tag teams of the 70s. They had battles with the Crusher and the Bruiser, who still, in the very early 70s, were vintage Crusher-Bruiser when it came to brawling and putting on a great match. And you had a lot of sellouts in Indianapolis and Chicago and other places that Bruiser promoted in at the time, but they became one of the legendary teams. They also were able to go down to Texas in 1975, 76 and work down there together in tag and singles matches with Jack Lanza actually getting Fritz von Erich's American title. He called it the, yeah, it was the American title for Fritz von Erich. Um, had that for a brief time and feuding with Fritz. So Jack Lanza's career was continually going upward with his Black Jack Lanza persona. When he went back to Vince Sr. in 1975-76, the Black Jacks were brought in again with Mulligan, and they held the WWWF tag team title for a, a short time. So as a team, uh, Jack hit, you know, the million-dollar look. Mm-hmm. Comes back to the AWA, I think, again, because it was his home territory and probably wanted to be closer to home. Vern, again, put him into main events with Bobby Heenan, and he is uh, teamed up with uh, Big Bad Bobby Duncan. And they were a formidable tag team, and they got the AWA tag team title. So Jack was always... Uh, right at the top of the cards once he did that transition to the heel. And he made the perfect heel because he was anti-everything. And, I mean, the fans in that era, Glenn, Mm -hmm. we still remembered the Cowboys and Indians on TV shows. And so if you had the bad cowboy, Blackjack, against a good cowboy like a cowboy Bill Watts, that always made for good entertainment, too. Or you had... Blackjack Lanza going against uh, the very popular Indian star Wahoo McDaniel and Chief J Strongbow and guys like that always made for good uh, a good mix and entertainment on a card. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of entertaining and big cards, uh, the Blackjacks you talked about uh, uh, of the matches they had with Bruiser and Crusher. One of them, when I was looking at results that come to mind, was having a, not only a big match. I mean, of course, Chicago, known for the famed International Amphitheater, as far as pro wrestling fans can remember back in the 70s and into the early 80s. Uh, I saw a match on here, and this must have been a heck of a doozy. Uh, Bruiser and Crusher were against the Blackjacks at Soldier Field in Chicago in early September. 
September 1972. A lot of people my age may remember Super Clash 1 uh, in 1985 at the Comiskey Park in, in Chicago, but Soldier Field... That's even bigger than Comiskey Park. So, I mean, you're talking about big cards uh, of, of the, you know, of the Hulk Hogan era. But this was back before all of the, the glitz and glamour. These guys were able to put on a show like that in a big field. That, that's telling you something about uh, the value of, of the of guys like that and a few that they were in. Well, and you know, the thing about that territorial system, too, when you had the wrestlers that worked together, for a period of three, four, five, six, seven months against each other in their program. It was all of the stories that they told in each of those individual matches that led up to that big, finally, we're going to settle this once and for all match. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had enough of you. You've had enough of me. We're going to settle this. And it could be a cage or it could be a, a death match or, you know, all kinds of stipulations that they put on it. But this is it, folks. We're going to end this. And like you say, Soldier's Field. And they had a good crowd. I don't have the attendance figure handy when you mention that, but they had a good a good crowd. And they were, those type of cards, they were very equivalent to what we later on had with the big, you know, super clashes and WrestleManias and so on. But you have to remember that those are once-a-year things. Mm-hmm. These type of matches back in that era, they were happening all over the country with good results because they ran cards on a regular weekly, bi-weekly or monthly basis in most of the territories. Mm-hmm. And they were able to pull this stuff off. Jack Lanza, um, when I think back to his interviews, you know, he had the perfect foil with a guy like the Crusher in the AWA. The Crusher you know, he battled every heel that ever came through the territory. If you eventually got to the crusher, you'd hit the big time. And the funny stuff that we come up with, you know, it was Bobby Heenan, or it was the crusher that gave Bobby Heenan the weasel name. I don't know how many fans remember this, but back when the crusher was feuding with Jack Lanza in the early 70s in the AWA, and he's got Bobby Heenan as his manager, Crusher, in his usual comedic way, comes out and calls Blackjack Oil Can Harry. (laughs) Now, unless you're my age or a little bit younger, you may not know who Oil Can Harry was, but he was a a cartoon character who was the adversary (laughs) to Mighty Mouse in the Mighty Mouse cartoons. And Oil Can Harry had the handlebar mustache and the big black tall hat, and he was the dastardly villain who was always trying to hurt Sweet Sue, and Mighty Mouse had to save the day. And so he calls him Oil Can Harry. And then he started calling Heenan. He'd come out, Crusher would come out on his interviews, and he had a jack-in-the-box. Now, as a kid, we all had a jack-in-the-box. You're winding the box, and pop goes the weasel. And that's what the Crusher did on his interview. And the fans are laughing about it. Heenan's putting on his irate. Lanza says, Crusher, you're an idiot. I'm gonna, we're going to stop you. You're, you're, you're a moron. You know, it was perfect. Just the perfect situation. 
<laughs> and I was looking over too in the, their their tag team uh, down their work down in uh, Dallas for big time wrestling. They were wrestling some yep. pretty good hosses. I mean, uh, they had matches with the Samoans. There was also, of course, Jose Lothario, Emil Mascaris creating a team at the time. And also looking at the results, I saw some of Bockwinkle and Stevens working with the Blackjacks. I mean, down in that territory, not only Dallas, but they also worked some big shows with, of course, in Houston with the great promoter Paul Bosch. So a lot can be said, too, of, of that uh, pre-WWF uh, run in, in Dallas in big-time wrestling. Well, and then the thing is, what you're seeing there when you say they wrestled against Bockwinkle and Stevens, if you look at that same era, Bob Orton Jr. was down there, too. Mm-hmm. But this was this was Vern Gagne and Paul Bosch and Fritz von Erich, who were the promoters. This was them working together, which promoters would do back in that era. You didn't go into my backyard and promote a card, but I would share some talent with you, and you would share some of your talent with me, and we got along fine. And Vern and Fritz and Paul Bosch, they were all good friends. And Nick and Ray would go down there. And there were a couple times they hooked up with the Blackjacks and had matches. And it just made for good, you know, as a fan like me looking at this in results, and I'm getting these programs in the mail at the time, I'm going, wow. The average fan would never know that. And that's what was fun about it because I always knew that's the part of my life that is exciting because I always knew what was happening. Mm-hmm. So, but great, great stuff. Oh, yeah. And, you know, you talked about, you know, now he had such a great run with Blackjack Mulligan. And we mentioned when he came, when um, Jack Lanza came back to the AWA in around 1976, he uh, started up another tag team with Bobby Duncan. And this was the tag team that well, actually he had some, uh, AWA Tag Team Championship success with, which was more surprising considering the long-term people remember more and have that connection with Mulligan because of that long Blackjacks uh, team. But, you know, Bobby Duncombe, their run has, there's a lot to be said about that, especially in that era of which, uh, you know, the High Flyers were really young, spry, and ready to go. And they were amongst an, a, a great slew of opponents for them uh, during that time in the AWA. Vern had a lot of respect for Bobby Duncombe. Uh, it's always interesting when you look at Bob Duncombe because he, he had good success in the business. I mean, he went from Florida, he was in Texas, he was, he was in a, a, the Mid-South Territory. He had different uh, roles in these territories. Some people may not know that Bobby Duncombe was one of the spoilers with Don Jardine in the Mid-South for a short time. Okay. And they were United States Tag Team Champions. He also, Bobby Duncombe also wrestled as one of the spoilers in Florida. And then he was Bob Duncombe himself. But yeah, when he hooked up with uh, Jack Lanza, and again, you had Bobby Heenan in there. And now you're talking that 75, 76, 77 era. That's when the Bobby Heenan family really came to be. Because Ray Stevens was eventually out of the picture. And you had Lanza Duncombe as the tag team champions, and you had Nick Bockwinkle as the singles champion, the AWA champion. And there was your Bobby Heenan family. Vern drew huge money with that, that combination. Uh, not enough credit can ever be given to Bobby Heenan for his role in the success. But let's never take away from Bockwinkle, Lanza, and Duncombe for what they brought to it, because they did. 
And Lanza was a huge part of that. Fans hated Jack Lanza, (laughs) which also made it very good because in pro wrestling, one of the greatest things that happens is the baby faces turn to heels, the heels turn to baby faces. Sometimes they flip back one more time in their career. And I will add just as a, a side note, in today's wrestling, that happens all the time. From week to week, sometimes they're flipping back and mm-hmm. forth where there's no, there's no harmony to it. But in the old days, there was a story that went with it. So as we get into the 80s, now Jack Lanza, Blackjack, he's getting to that point in his career where he's not wrestling as much, and I think he's probably feeling, you know, I'm not able to be as good as I once was. He turns babyface again and feuds with Bobby Heenan. He's tired of Heenan's interference, and Heenan cost him this. And Heenan, of course, you know, you're an ingrate. You're, 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 I'm going to stop you, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It, it, was, it was perfect. And so now Jack Lanza comes into the ring, and he's wrestling against Bobby Heenan. Well, anybody that went against Bobby Heenan was automatically the babyface. I mean, the devil himself, I think, back in <laughs> Heenan's heyday, could have been the babyface. So true. But Jack, Jack Lanza came into the ring, and he adopted a different look. He had a white hat, mm-hmm. a white vest, white trunks, and white boots. He was still Black Jack Lanza, introduction-wise. But now, if you looked at him, he was really white Jack Lanza. <laughs> he was the babyface. Yes. And then they, they rounded it out when they had a sort of a, even though they had never been together in the AWA itself, Mulligan did come back. And he came back with the idea that he was helping Bobby Heenan. That's what the fans were led to believe. But Jack Lanza talked some sense into him. And I was at ringside the night that happened in St. Paul. Lanza came to ringside and went up to Mulligan, who was teamed with Bachwinkle against Mad Dog and Crusher in a tag team match. And Lanza started whispering and talking to Mulligan. And before you know it, Mulligan threw his hands up and left Bachwinkle in the ring with Mad Dog and Crusher to finish him off. And that was the reuniting of the Blackjacks. And so we had a short run with them in 1984-85 with the Blackjacks against uh, Jerry Blackwell and uh, Abdullah the Butcher. We had uh, just, it was fun seeing them together again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And also, uh, Lanza and Heenan had their own solo, uh, you know, singles uh, feud as well, and with some gimmick matches, like right. a bunkhouse type of thing. Did they do the Weasel stuff as yeah. well too? Like I know they did with Greg, but did they do a Weasel run with with Heenan and Lanza, or was it just your bunkhouse anything goes matches? What, what, what was the type of match you were talking um, about? Uh, uh, with Bobby and, and Lanza doing uh, singles matches uh, together, like a grudge match, sort of. I, I've read that there was a, either a was it, was it bunkhouse matches or did they do did they have any weasel matches with those two or was it just a uh, oh, him and Greg? Not, no, they did not have weasel matches, uh, but they had the well, he was always the weasel, mm-hmm. Heenan was, but they didn't actually have weasel suit matches or anything. Okay. That was that was pretty much Greg Gagne that was able to pull that off. But Lanza, yeah, they did have what they called bunkhouse matches, which was 
really just a, a lumberjack type match that they'd had over the years in pro wrestling. But as Jack Lanza said, you know, in the, in the cowboy world, you know, we get a bunch <laughs> of cowboys fighting and we have a bunkhouse match. Oh, naturally. And they're all outside the ring and Heenan's not going to escape. So they got all these wrestlers around ringside that are going to toss him back into the ring if he tries to escape. And they went over really well. And that feud with uh, Lanza was pretty much after him and, and Mulligan were together at that point, and that started to slow things down. And that's when Jack started to kind of dabble into the promoting side, handling Winnipeg and that sort of thing with Wally Carble. Yeah, how long ago was that into when the seeds were kind of planted for, for Jack? Was this something that was developing over time? Because, uh, you know, once he kind of came in, I mean, this was a, a, a big task. I mean, did he get kind of sort of groomed into it, uh, or, or was it just something that uh, just kind of came in a couple of years into the 80s? How did that that transition come about for, for Jack, from what you can remember? The transition where he, he basically bought the promotion in Winnipeg to work for Vern and Vern would supply the wrestlers and Jack and Carble would go up there and run the promotion. And it also was grooming him, you know, whether he knew it at the time or not for his final stint in his career, when he'd go to the WWF as a road agent, because uh, McMahon never used blackjack Lanza after his 1975 uh, run there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, thinking about Lanza's Winnipeg run when he came in, uh, from what I've read in different sources, of course, uh, it could be disproven, but the houses were uh, not exactly where they, they would have liked them to be, and he kind of helped kind of even towards the last end of uh, before McMahon kind of gobbled them up. They were starting to have some respectable uh, attendance numbers in Winnipeg uh, during a j- part of Jack's run booking that uh, area of the AWA. Well, and that was also in that era when the AWA, like all the other territories for that time period, but especially the AWA, Glenn, they were, they were running cards on a monthly basis and just having tremendous fan turnout. Um, there's, there's a lot of reasons that you can sit down and say, well, why was it happening? I've always figured it out that it was a younger generation of fans that were coming in because they were discovering wrestling for the first time. It was also an era when the older guard of wrestlers, I'll call them my era, the Vern Gagnas and the Crushers and the Mad Dogs and the Snyders and Bruisers, and et cetera, they were all now 25, 30 years into the business, and their careers were on the downside, and all the new stars were coming in. And, you know, regardless of where you looked in the country, you had the Ted DiBiase's and the Junkyard Dogs and obviously Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage, the Rick Rudes and Paul Orndorff's, the Von Erichs, all of these young talent coming in and throw in the Road Warriors and Rick Martell, all this younger talent. And it was drawing in a new group of fans, a new age group. And so all of that attributed to that rush in the very early 80s when you go across America. The AWA was doing tremendous business. Two of their best money years were 1981 and 82. They certainly did very well in 83 and 84 as well. They did well in 85. After that, it started to get 
kind of ugly because that's when the business was changing very, very drastically from not only the AWA, but for every territory with everybody going to different, uh, well, going to Vince McMahon and Vince paying people not to show up, uh, bringing them under contract. And it, it was a bad time in the business, but the, the three years before that, it was great. Mm-hmm. Now you talked about uh, Lanza's life uh, uh, leaving the, the, the ring, the in-ring competition, uh, going uh, to the WWF around 84. And from there, building up a very uh, well-respected run as an agent and probably had a little more power than what we may have uh, imagined. But he was a very well-respected agent. And what the thing was, he had the, the trust and the respect uh, amongst the, the locker rooms of the, of the years that he was in there amongst the boys. And that uh, isn't always uh, the, the easiest route to, to get uh, as far as having all of those people pretty much in sync with what he was, uh, you know, the rules and the line that he was towing. But Jack did a very good job, and a lot of tributes have come in from the guys that uh, he was agenting for uh, post uh, his wrestling career and just how much respect even generations now have, have for Lanza in that run. Just as a behind-the-scenes guy. Well, and being behind the scenes, you know, a lot of people have asked, well, what was the road agent's duty? And with, without making it sound bad, in many ways they were a babysitter because their job was to go to a particular town with a certain bunch of wrestlers, whoever was on the card, to see that the card was to run the way it was supposed to be run and promoted, to see that the guys were in their right spots and doing what they were supposed to be doing, and also to make sure that they're, you know, being good. And I, when I say being good, you know, not getting into trouble or, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. So Jack had a, a lot of responsibility and he was, you know, basically under contract to Vince McMahon at that point to take care of whatever towns he was a road agent in, but it was his responsibility to see that things ran right. And those, those road agents, many times they would have the, the finishes and the different things that they were going to uh, provide the guys for whatever they were doing in that particular town. So he had a lot of responsibility. I want to touch on something that we didn't touch on. Sure. Um, when we go back to 1986, this was when the AWA was, was starting to break down because so much of the talent that had come in, Vern wasn't able to keep them because Vince would bring them over to his territory. Vince was running a lot of cards in those days, a lot of house shows, and he needed a lot of talent. And it did him good when he could pull guys that were from certain cities then go into that city and promote them. So here we have 1986. Vern is under fire. He has to come up with a big name to hold his heavyweight championship. He decided upon Stan Hansen. Now, Stan and Vern had had a little minor altercation like five years earlier when Stan Hansen had worked very briefly for the AWA in 1979-80. And he and Vern didn't get along. Stan left. They suspended him on TV, but he left. So Vern decided he was going to put the title on Hanson, which on paper makes perfect sense because here was a national star 
known well in Japan, very well respected in the business as far as being a guy that can draw a house, but not respected in the sense that he was his own, shall I say, he was his own man. Mm -hmm. Stan was going to do what Stan wanted to do for Stan. And that was a Bruiser Brody type approach. They were very much the rebel independents. They were the guys you wanted on your cards, but they caused you a lot of headache to have them on your cards. That said, Jack Lanza, here's where we come back to Jack. When Vern was going to put the title on Stan Hansen, Jack Lanza, along with Nick Bockwinkel, both told Vern, don't do it. Don't put it on Stan. You're going to have trouble. You're, going to, you're not going to be able to get it off of him, or you're going to have issues. Well, Vern, to his credit, has to make some decisions. He needs a name that's big like Hulk Hogan and so on that's you know in the WWF at that time. He does, it, he does put the title on him. Well, we all know now in hindsight the headaches that went with that oh, decision yeah. because uh, Stan Hansen had his allegiance to Giant Baba in Japan. That's where Stan was making his biggest money, and that's where his you know, loyalty was. Vern agreed with Baba that we'll put the title on Stan, but I need him to work for me too. And we got to the point when Vern finally had Stan not in the territory and not able to put him in matches that he wanted to put him in. He decides he's going to take the title off of him. So that deal in Denver, the night of the match with Bockwinkel, Stan Hansen is told by Vern that you're going to drop the title tonight. Stan got upset, said, I'm not losing it because I'm going over to Japan and I'm, I'm recognized as the AWA champion over there. I'm going to be defending the title. I'm not, I'm not going to drop it. Vern says, yes, you are. Stan walks out of the arena with the belt. There's where the controversy. So to Jack Lance's credit, he knew, Nick knew, and in hindsight, it was advice that Vern should have taken. Perhaps the thing could have turned out differently in the AWA. We don't know. I mean, that's all speculation. Sure. Or as we'd call the old armchair quarterbacking. But the bottom line is uh, Jack Lanza had that intuitive thing about him where he said, don't do it. Don't put it on Hanson because we're going to have issues. Very smart man as we are remembering the life of Jack Lanza here on Rasslin Memories. We uh, have a few more minutes here in the program, George. And I want to ask you about what some of the moments that you were able to see Black Jack Lanza and some of the most notable stuff you saw as strictly a fan, not merely just an historian and a good historian at that, but for you as a fan, what can you take as far as the highlights uh, in your personal uh, reel of what you can remember of, of Black Jack Lanza or just Jack Lanza in general? You know, if I put on my fan cap, uh, Glenn, I always was excited when I'd see something new in pro wrestling. And when Jack Lanza had been gone from the AWA for two years, and they're announcing that he's coming back in 1969, and they keep making it clear in the wrestling programs that he's coming back and he's changed. He's, he's gotten bitter. He's now called Blackjack Lanza. And when he first came back 
that first night I was sitting at the St. Paul Auditorium, and when Heenan and Lanza came to ringside, I remember that I thought Lanza looked bigger. He, he definitely uh, was just different. It was fun to see that, that transition and see how he evolved from the clean-cut, scientific, whole baby face to this, this big villain. But one of the highlights for me was during that time frame between 1969 and 1972-ish, I had made several trips to St. Louis, great wrestling city. I'm telling you that it was a, it was a promotion and a city within itself that uh, made great wrestling. They would run monthly cards. And during that time period, Jack Lanza, Black Jack Lanza, along with Bobby Heenan, were two of the biggest names on the cards at that time, and that's where I really enjoyed seeing him. What was intriguing to me was that Bobby Heenan in St. Louis with Lanza was the only time that Sam Muchnick ever let a manager come to ringside and be at ringside with a wrestler. No other manager ever had that honor. So I think that says something about the teamwork of Lanza and Heenan. One of the things that happened in St. Louis that I thought was memorable with Jack was it was in 1969 and he was um, teamed with Dick the Bruiser and they had a falling out. And that was where Dick the Bruiser turned babyface in St. Louis. The irony of that is that he had been a babyface in the AWA since 1965, but four years later, he's still a heel, you know, in St. Louis, which again, unless I traveled there, I may never have known that or, you know, gotten the fan magazines or whatever was out at the time. But that was, that was my memory of, of Jack Lanza. He just was a good draw. I saw him one time in the, Metropolitan Sports Center when the AWA ran a card there and he wrestled against Wahoo McDaniel. And I, I was sitting at ringside and I'm thinking, you know, this is fun. It's like watching an old TV Western, the Cowboys <laughs> and the Indians, except in this case, it was the Cowboy that was the bad one. <laughs> Bizarre old Because usually, you know, in the old gun smoke days, they portrayed, um, the the Indians as the bad people. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of a reversal, but it was fun to see because uh, Wahoo, he could make a, In fact, I saw Wahoo and Lanza wrestle in St. Paul Auditorium too one time. Uh, oh one of the first matches that Wahoo had had when he came to the AWA. So in 1972. So they, they always had a good chemistry between them and their matches were great. I mean, if you can't have a good match with Wahoo McDaniel and a good match with Lanza as the heel, then you can't have a good match because they, they just had a good chemistry. Mm -hmm. Well, we're uh, starting to run out of time here. It's always a pleasure to have you on the program, George. Uh, of course, we celebrated the life of uh, Jack Lanza, who passed away here on the 8th of December. Uh, but we decided instead of just, you know, you know, being being all down in the dumps about it, we we like to have these episodes more as a, a celebration of uh, the man that was and what they did for pro wrestling, what they did, uh, you know, in their own lives. Just the person. We got to remember, 
a great wrestler in the ring, is still a person in real life. Thank you, George. Hey, it's always my pleasure, Glenn. Continued success with wrestling memory. Absolutely. And uh, yes, you don't ever be a stranger, right? <laughs> well, I always feel like I'm a part of it because, uh, boy, it was 10 years ago already when we started doing it. Absolutely. And uh, I call you like my your continuing contributing editor because uh, we always love having you on. You're knowledgeable and you can bring up some such great points and have share such great stories of not only just you following the wrestling, but you being at these events and, you know, as a fan as well. You have a great balance, my friend. Thank you. I appreciate that. And you're doing good otherwise, other than having your little crud. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm healthy and good. So, hey, for George Shire, I'm Glenn Broggett. This has been Rasslin' Memories.